All right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20? Coming into the home stretch in our study in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus and the guys are on the move, and uh, they're moving up towards Jerusalem. And as we said, the final events that will lead up to the Lord's crucifixion. Now, this morning we want to pick it up in verse 17 of Matthew 20. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will, will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Now, in these verses, Jesus gives the third prediction of his coming suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. We don't really know if the disciples grasped the reality of what was coming any better this third time of telling them than they did the first two times. We know from Mark's gospel the second time that he told them that soon he was going to be crucified and the third day he was going to rise again. It says that they didn't understand what he was talking about. Well, why is that? It was pretty clear, right? Well, I think it has to do with their understanding of what the Messiah was going to do when he finally came. And they believed that the Messiah, when he came, would establish his kingdom on the earth. Remember that the first time that Jesus told his disciples he was going to be crucified and on the third day rise again was back in Matthew chapter 16. At that time, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Lord, far be it from you, this shall not happen to you. Now look, Peter was no doubt speaking for all the disciples. Because all of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And as the Messiah, they believed he was eventually going to lead them in a revolt against the Roman Empire, overthrow it, and establish a kingdom on the earth. Why did they believe that? Because that's what every Jew believed Messiah was going to do when he came. In fact, from the time children were just old enough to understand, they began to tell them that someday the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to deliver us from the yoke of Gentile oppression, which at that moment was Roman oppression. And he would lead us in a revolt against Rome, overthrow it, and establish a glorious new kingdom on the earth over which he would reign visibly from Jerusalem, and the Jewish people would be all of his prime ministers, and so on. That was their hope. That's what kept them going. That Messiah, when he showed up, he was going to deliver them from this Roman oppression. But you see, a dead Messiah can't do any of that. And that's why when he began to talk about his, uh, his coming death, uh, they couldn't handle it. And Peter takes him aside and actually rebukes him for it. It's interesting that three times he told them he was going to be crucified soon. Three times he told them, but on the third day he would rise again. And yet they only heard that first part, that he was going to die. We know that because that first resurrection Sunday morning, when the ladies went to the tomb to finish preparing the body of Jesus for burial... And they found the stone rolled away, the tomb empty. They ran back and told the disciples, what do these great men of faith say? Ah, you're crazy. They didn't believe that he had risen from the dead. They had to run to the tomb and see for themselves. Why is that? I mean, Jesus told them clearly. Well, I think it gets into the psychology of hearing bad news. I think a lot of times when we hear bad news, our brains kind of shut off and we don't hear what follows, although it might be good news. You know, you go to the doctor, your 
Test came back. The doctor says, I've got some bad news. You have a very serious disease. You hear that? Click. Your brain shuts off. You don't hear the doctor say, but there's a new treatment, and we think we can cure you. See, I think that they were so locked into this understanding that Messiah was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome. They heard him say, I'm going to die soon. And that, of course, smashed all their hopes and dreams. Everything they had invested in him, they had hitched their wagon to Jesus' star because they believed he was going to establish the kingdom and they would have special places of honor in the kingdom. They hear him say, I'm going to be crucified soon. Click, <laughs> brain shut off. They never heard him say, but on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, Jesus moves then in verse 20 after he predicts his coming crucifixion for the third time. And then starting in verse 20, he teaches on kingdom greatness, which actually was precipitated by a question. We, uh, we read in verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, uh, John and James, their mom was Salome. And she came to Jesus with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. She wanted a favor. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. <laughs> no big request, right? Look, <laughs> the concern of Jewish mothers for their sons is legendary. I get that. <laughs> However, Mark's gospel intimates that James and John actually asked their mother, not that she was unwilling, but they actually asked their mother to go to Jesus for them with this request. Mama, would, would you go talk to him for us? Look, we can't be too hard on James and John. I mean, wanting greatness uh, in this life for themselves. That's just part of who we are as fallen human beings. It goes to our pride. It is pride that wants to be great in the sense of honor and prestige and, and power over others. That's why politics attracts so many people who really aren't looking to serve. They're looking to be served and to use their power to enrich themselves and lord it over others. Not all, but many. And the way that most people obtain greatness in this world is through special favors based on family relationships or other close personal relationships with those in positions of power who have the ability to, you know, give them influence and maybe some uh, job with the influence and power attached to it. And that's why people are always kind of, you know, they're always working to kind of get to know people because they're looking to use that relationship to better themselves. And that's exactly what Salome tried to do with Jesus. She tried to get him to grant her request based on nepotism. You see, Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which meant that Jesus was her nephew. And James and John were Jesus' first cousins. So they figured, look, if anybody's going to get these seats of power and authority in the kingdom, it ought to be us. We're family. All right? But even so, she comes to Jesus because she knows his character. And... Um, she wants to first kind of butter him up before she asks this question. So what does she do? She comes up to him, and she what? She kneels down before him. The word kneel there is a Greek word, proskuneo, which is actually translated worship in other parts of the New Testament. So understand this. She worshiped Jesus in order to get something from Jesus. And this is a tactic that many enter into when they want to get things from God. Maybe... They were raised in a church home. You know, they went to church when they were little, but now they've walked away from God and are adults. 
And, uh, you know, they know who he is, but they're really not giving God any kind of uh, place in their life. And suddenly they get a pink slip. Their job is being terminated. So what do they do? Better get back to church, okay? Better get back in God's good graces so I can ask him for a job. Or, again, they come from a doctor and they hear some bad news, and so uh, I need to get back to church so that I could, you know, ask God to, to heal me. I don't think he'll do it right now because I'm not really walking with him. But if I get back to church and start worshiping again, uh, maybe he'll grant me my request. You say, well, is that wrong? Look, anything that brings you back to God or to God, doesn't matter to me, whatever it is, praise the Lord. But the problem is, oftentimes when people are going through very difficult circumstances, which drives them to God, and God answers the prayer, what do they do? Okay, God, thanks a lot. Back on the shelf for the next trial or the next problem that is the problem if something drives you to god and there you really give your heart to jesus and your life is devoted to him from that moment on i don't care what brings you to to, to the lord in fact god uses those things to bring you to him but if you allow your problem to drive you to church and then god answers that problem or fixes it and you put them on the shelf and walk away where your mindset is basically, well, I'll use God when I need him, but when I don't need him, I'm doing my thing, all right? And when I need him, come to church, worship him, but you want something from it. And that's the problem too often today. You know, it's not the, that problems drive us to church. That's okay. It's that, you know, we're only looking at God to solve problems and not to be the Lord of our life. But to say this request was bold, as I said earlier, would be an understatement because sitting at the right hand and left hands of a king were the highest positions of honor in the kingdom. Of course, Jesus was, uh, he knew the heart, okay? He knew this request originated with James and John. So Jesus turns to them and says in verse 22, look guys, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said to him, oh yeah, we're able. (laughs) First of all, let me just say this. The cup that Jesus mentions here was the cup of suffering and death he had just talked about in verses 18 and 19. This is confirmed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross. When Jesus is praying to the Father and falls on his face and says, oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless not what i will but what you will what is this cup it's called in revelation the cup of his indignation the cup of his wrath which was poured full strength on jesus i don't think personally jesus feared the physical torture of the next day as much as sin being poured out on a holy and righteous god which would cause the father to turn his face from the son Fellowship broken for the first time in eternity. And I think that was what Jesus feared the most. To have the Father turn his face from the Son. The psalmist prophesying of that very event says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus repeats it again, of course, uh, on the cross. Well, the Father forsook the Son because God cannot look upon sin. God can have no fellowship with sin. And Jesus became sin for us on that cross. So the cup, the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath uh, poured out against sin. But baptism, he said, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? 
The word baptism simply means to immerse. It comes from the Greek word baptizo, which is just, baptism becomes a transliteration of that Greek word. If you follow the word baptism throughout the New Testament, you will find it means to immerse, but you've got to look at the context. What is the context talking about? We often think of water baptism. That's the most common. If I said, what is baptism? You would say, well, dipping somebody in water. Well, okay, that's water baptism. But it's not always connected to water. And here, uh, he's talking about not water baptism, obviously. In fact, he was already baptized by John three and a half years earlier. But this is the baptism he spoke of in Luke 12, 50, where he said, But I have a baptism that I must be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it's accomplished. What was he talking about? Well, the word baptism means to immerse. He was immersed in his mission, which was to go to the cross and die for our sins. The writer to the Hebrews says he despised the shame of the cross, but he looked forward to the glory afterwards, right? What was that glory? Well, first of all, he could gather to himself a whole community of worshipers, a bride that he would be able to love forever and pour his love into forever. But to get there, he had to go through the cross first. He despised the cross. Nobody says we got to enjoy the cross. Pick up your cross, Jesus said, and follow after me if you're going to be my disciple. Nobody here says, woohoo, okay. We despise the cross, don't we? But we look forward to the glory that waits for us in heaven. And the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this idea of being baptized and drinking of the cup, uh, it's all about his suffering and death. And Jesus was essentially saying to James and John, look, greatness and glory in the coming earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom, can't be granted as a favor to friends and family. Listen, it is earned by enduring suffering for the cause of Christ. Let, let me just say this to you. When we talk about heaven and eternal life, Heaven, eternal life, is a free gift. We don't earn it, okay? We can't do anything to earn it. We just, it is granted to us as a gift. As we put our faith in Christ, receive him as Lord and Savior, and ask the Father to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and give to us eternal life as the gift he has promised us, John 3. But after we get saved, the life we live for the Lord, which includes the suffering, the hardships, as we keep him as the focus, and we endure it looking to the joy that will follow afterwards, rejoicing in his kingdom forever. Well, that will determine our glory in heaven. That's what our rewards are all about. And so how faithful we were in living for the Lord right now. Now, again, I have to focus on verse 22 for a minute, okay? Because Jesus said to them, look, you guys don't know what you're asking. Sit in my right hand and my left in the kingdom. <laughs> Man, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink from and be baptized with the baptism I myself am going to be baptized with? And they said, oh, yeah, we're able. I'm sure at that moment, James and John had no clue what they were saying. But they would go on to find out that following Jesus didn't lead to a crown, not initially, but to a cross presently. Look, I think too many people are too quick to make a quick profession of faith and begin to follow Jesus, quote-unquote, without first really counting the cost. Didn't he tell us that? He said, look, don't follow me until you have first counted the cost. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. Your friends, no doubt, will split, as mine did when I got saved. You'll commit social... I'm not, Jesus didn't say all this. I'm just saying this is what was implied, right? You know, you're going to commit social suicide. Your own family may turn against you. Look, if you're not really serious about this and you don't really understand all that you're committing to, don't do it until you first count the cost, right? 
James and John had no clue what they were really doing, but they hung in there. They hung in there through the coming persecution. So they were genuine, right? But there are other people who make a quick profession of faith, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, fill a card out, and in their minds, I'm a Christian now. And yet when persecution and suffering arise for the cause of Christ, many of them immediately fall away because suffering and persecution for Jesus' sake has a way of weeding out phonies. Jesus told us this in the parable of the sower. Remember he said, a sower went forth to sow seed in his field. The seed was the word of God. The sower was any person who uh, served the Lord and witnesses to people and so on. And the soil the seed fell on, which was different types of soil, represented different types of heart. He said some of the seed fell on shallow soil. And it sprang up quickly, but when the sun came up, because the sun was hot and it had no depth, in other words, it couldn't sink, the plants couldn't sink their, their roots deep enough to get any moisture because it would hit this limestone uh, rock shelf. That's why the soil was shallow. Well, because it couldn't go down deep enough to get moisture, when the sun came up, the plant withered and died. And Jesus, when he later on explained that parable to his, his disciples, said, look, there are those people who receive the word with great joy and emotion. I've seen them. Give a message. Hey, if you want to come up here to receive Christ, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. Came up. They're weeping. You know, they're, they're just, you know, it's just emotional. You just, wow, you look, man, God really got a hold of that person. But so often we pray the prayer. They come to church for a little while, and then they're gone. It's as Jesus said. There are those people who accept Christ, supposedly, with a lot of emotion. But there's no depth in their commitment. So when persecution arises, he said, for the cause of Christ, for the gospel, immediately they fall away. Persecution has a way of weeding out the false from the true. And if you're a person who's made a commitment to Christ, and you've taken the heat, your family maybe, people at work, friends, and someday it may even become physical persecution. But if you've hung in there so far with regard to all the things you've suffered for his name already, that indicates that you're a genuine believer. And not only are you genuine, but the way you are uh, enduring suffering for his sake, well, it's, it's acquiring for you and accumulating rewards in heaven. Remember what Jesus said? I'll just read to you Matthew 5, 11 and uh, 12, where Jesus said, Blessed are you, talking to his people now, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, we know we're on the right team if the world is persecuting us. Jesus said, look, if you were of the world, the world would love you. The world loves its own. But because you're not of the world, I've called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you and will persecute you because you belong to me. Hey, if I'm being persecuted by the world... Praise God, I know who I belong to. But I'll tell you what, if the world's singing your praises as a Christian, something's wrong. Something's very wrong. Well, verse 23, so he said to them, when they said, yeah, we're able. Nope, bring it on, Lord, no problem. He said, look, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Jesus said to these guys, John, James, you will indeed suffer for my sake. You're going to drink the cup. We know that James became the first martyr of the church age, Acts 12. 
James, the brother of John, became the first martyr of the church age, and John was eventually banished to the Isle of Patmos, which was basically a large rock jutting up in the Aegean Sea. It was a penal colony. The Romans had established a penal colony on this rock in the Aegean, and they mined something there. I forgot what they mined there, but it was hard work. John was over 90 when he was banished to the Isle. So he worked, uh, they, they worked these guys to death. God must have given him the grace to survive because it was on the island of, island of Patmos that he also received the revelation that became the book of Revelation. So for our sakes, that suffering was important for us in that it gave us an incredible book telling us what's coming. But it wasn't easy for John. Now, verse 24, when they heard it, what John and James asked, they were, the other disciples were greatly displeased with the two brothers. <laughs> Look, uh, don't think for a second these other disciples were displeased because they were just repulsed by the level of carnality and selfishness that John and James uh, demonstrated, you know, asking for greatness in the kingdom. Hey, look, they were all guilty of this, all right? They had all demonstrated the same selfish ambition. Earlier, we read in Mark's gospel how they're on their way to Capernaum. And they're walking down the road, of course, and Jesus was kind of up in front, and the other disciples were kind of hanging, you know, they were hanging behind. And they were arguing about something, and Jesus heard them arguing. And so when they came to Capernaum, they came into the house, and he asked them, what were you arguing among yourselves about on the road there? He says, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So this was a running argument that they had had throughout his entire ministry. I'm going to be the great. No, no, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm, well, I'm going to sit in his right. No, no, I'm going to sit in his right hand. You know, and this was something they were always arguing about. They were all guilty of this. Just that James and John had the guts enough to go approach Jesus, probably based on nepotism. Well, if he's going to make anybody great in the kingdom, it's going to be us. Where's, where's family? You know, that kind of thing. So verse 25 to 28 become the real heart, though, of this whole passage. And Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." In other words, Jesus is saying that the Gentiles, in other words, unbelievers, measure greatness in terms of how many people they are over. But Jesus said greatness in the eyes of God is measured by how many people you put yourself under to serve. And then he said in verse 27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now, we talked about this Greek word last week. The word first there in the Greek uh, in this context means first in the sense of honor and importance. Honor and importance. And so again, in the eyes of the world, we know the higher a person climbs in business or in politics, and the more people they have authority over, well, the greater they are perceived to be. But Jesus is saying that that is backwards from how God views greatness. In the eyes of God, the more people you place yourself under as a slave. A slave was somebody who had no rights, whose whole life was wrapped up in serving others, serving his master, basically. But in the eyes of God, the more people you place yourself under as a slave to serve, the greater you're going to be in the kingdom someday. In fact, guys, 
kingdom thinking and living is so contrary from the world's way of looking at things that when Jesus taught on the subject of kingdom thinking and living, his teaching seemed paradoxical and even crazy to the unsaved mind. Jesus said things like this. He said, he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. He said when it comes to the kingdom, if you want to be somebody, you have to be nobody. He said the more you give away, the richer you will become. Luke 6.38 He said if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted, but if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. In other words, the way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. Why did he talk like this? I'll tell you why in part. It was to weed out the ones whose hearts were not right. Those that were just following him, looking for him to bless them in some way or entertain them with a miracle here and there. He would say things like this because it sounded so crazy to the unsaved mind. Those who had a selfish heart and did not want to really follow him for the right reasons, often they would peel off and, and leave. And that was fine with him because he was not about building a big ministry. He was about getting a hold of hearts. But the church today has come around and we, they have decided, many Christian leaders, to try to make Christianity appealing to the unsaved mind. How do they do that? Well, by promising people that come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy. He'll bless your business. You'll have the nicest car and the nicest house in the neighborhood, etc., etc. Come to Jesus and all the your felt needs will be answered. You'll have peace. You'll have joy. You'll have this. And you know what? You will have a lot of those things. But you'll have them in the midst of suffering, not in the absence of suffering. It's just a tragedy today that churches are filled basically with religious unbelievers. Why? Because those churches have encouraged these, peoples to, these people to come because they're promised all these wonderful material goodies. In fact, that's a sign of the last days, as Paul said to Timothy, a faithful pastor. In the last days, many would not want to hear a sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Positive confession and prosperity gospel, that tickles ears. That's what people want to hear. They don't want to hear about the cross. They don't want to hear about dying to their desires and their own goals and things to follow Jesus. They want to hear how God's going to bless them, how God's going to enrich them, how God is, exists to make them happy. In verse 28, Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Greek word for ransom is used for the price paid to free a slave. For the price paid to free a slave. This particular Greek word is only, only appears twice in the New Testament. Once here in Matthew 20, 28, and again in the parallel passage in Mark 10, 45. And in both passages, it refers to Jesus giving himself as the price to redeem us from the slavery of sin and death. And notice it's coupled with the preposition in Greek for. See it there? Give his life a ransom for many. That's the Greek word anti. And it's a word that literally means instead of or in the place of. Jesus Christ came to give his life a ransom, which means to die in our place, to die instead of us. Now, that's very important. 
And most of you here are probably going, well, amen. I mean, that's obvious. We know that. But do you realize that there is a whole group of people? This is gaining popularity in the church today. There are people who are saying that Jesus Christ and the cross didn't really affect anything. It was symbolic. It was an example for us to follow of servanthood. But it didn't really atone for our sins. They are denying penal substitution. Penal substitution means a substitute was punished in our place. That's what the gospel is built on. That Jesus Christ was punished in our place. And the only way we can have eternal life was through what he did. You cannot have the gospel without penal substitution. If Jesus wasn't punished in our place instead of us, there could be no forgiveness of sins. You know, well, he just died to give us a great example of servanthood. Well, yes, him going to the cross was a fantastic example of how we need to die, not maybe literally on the cross, of course, die to self to serve others. But my goodness, his death was not just symbolic. It was efficacious. It did something. It atoned for our sins. We, you all know, of course, the verses very well. Let me read it to you one more time. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6 where it says, Surely he, the Lord Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, the peace that we would have with God, came through what he suffered for us. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. One more time. Verses 26 to 28 will bring this to a close. Jesus said, yet it shall not be so among you. The Lord it over people. That's not how you achieve greatness in God's kingdom. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me have you turn to John 13. John 13 takes place in the upper room the night before the crucifixion. Now, remember from what we just said earlier about this running argument the disciples had about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Do you know they were having that very argument the night before the cross? Can you imagine that? His heart must have been pierced with their carnality, you know? And so he just gets up from the table and walks over and takes a towel and girds his waist with it, takes some water, pours it into a basin. And then with the towel, he begins to stoop down by each of their feet to wash their feet. See, as we have said many times, they didn't sit at a table to eat. They reclined uh, at a 45-degree angle around uh, a, uh, a table that really sat on the floor. It's a block of wood, basically. And they would recline on one arm with, with their arm on pillows. And at a 45-degree angle, which meant your feet weren't too far from somebody else's face, which, you know, if you're going to eat, obviously you want somebody with clean feet. It was just good manners if you were a host to provide uh, a servant to wash people's feet when they entered your house. Well, guess what? That was the lowest job of the lowest servant. These guys were all arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So naturally, none of them grabbed water in a basin to wash anyone's feet. So Jesus did. You remember how he came to Peter, and Peter was shocked and horrified. He said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And he said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll never have fellowship with me. Okay, I'll take a bath. 
I love Peter. We uh, get down on Peter. But he, he had some moments where he shunned. All right. Um, but after he did that, verse 13 tells us, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed there in the Greek could be translated, oh, how happy. What is Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us something very important. He's teaching us that happiness will never be found as a direct pursuit. And we have a society, a whole country of people, that are trying to prove that wrong, aren't they? They are trying to find happiness in material pursuits, in, uh, in other kind of pursuits. And Jesus is saying, if you want to find happiness, it's not going to come as a direct pursuit. It's going to come as a byproduct from the way you serve others. The way you serve others. You know, several years ago, I heard a pastor tell a true story. Never forgotten it goes back into the 1800s. And there was a missions organization that wanted to send their missionaries out in the field some words of encouragement. So they sent a representative to the telegraph, that's how far back it's going, to the telegraph office to send a message to each of these missionaries to encourage their hearts. When the representative got to the telegraph office, he was made aware that they charged by the letter. They charged by the letter to send a message. And the message that he wanted sent was going to cost way too much money. In fact, as he counted up what the budget was and how that much he had to spend, he determined that he would only have enough money to send them all one word. Now, what word would you have chosen? Think about that. You're in his position. You can only send one word to missionaries to encourage them. What word would you have chosen? You know the word he chose? Others. Others. The name I've given to this message. Others. Because that sums up our whole Christian life and why we are followers of Christ. He's our master. We are his slaves. And the master tells us what to do, and he says, you serve others. You serve others. And I realize, guys, it's difficult to make time to serve others with the holidays upon us and all the busyness. But let's not forget that Jesus is the reason for the season. The one who said, I came for one reason, and it wasn't to be served. It wasn't to make myself happy. It was to serve and to give my life a ransom for others. And that's when he told us basically to go and wash feet. Well, maybe not literally in our culture, but find something that you can do that will communicate that you really are a servant of Christ. Something that maybe nobody else really wants to do. Look, somehow our modern American Christianity has moved from being Christ-centered and other-centered to being self-centered. And maybe that's the big reason. Not the only reason, but maybe it's a big reason why so many Christians seem so empty and unhappy inside because they're violating something Jesus taught, very important. 
they are focusing on themselves and their needs, wanting God to satisfy their desires and needs, mostly desires, and not looking really to be a servant to all like Jesus was. Look, I know a lot of Christians, especially this time of year when everyone should be happy, and depression takes hold of a lot of people this time of year. Christians are not immune. They seem empty inside. They, they, they feel guilty about it, right? Hey, I'm a Christian. Jesus lives in my heart. Why am I so depressed? Why am I so empty? Well, I think some of that spiritual warfare, don't misunderstand me. But I think some of it could be that we're focusing too much on ourselves and not on others. Let me give you one more kingdom paradox. If you want to be full, then you must become empty. Empty of self, so God can fill you with his spirit and give you a love for others. Look, ask the Lord for an opportunity to serve somebody in some way this Christmas season. Now, many of you are already involved in ministry. God bless you. We have a wonderful program, folks at the back, that will help you get plugged in, where we go down to the city, and we serve the homeless down there, and we, we give them backpacks full of things that they need, blankets and ponchos and stuff. If you want to be a part of that, you can get plugged in. Uh, so we have folks that are serving others. And if you were to ask them, as they're about ready to go down again, to serve these people dinner, and you were to ask them, I, I mean, you know, I am so busy with everything, where did you find the time to do that? I didn't find the time, I made the time. Now let me just tell you something. When I go down there and I serve, and I see what these folks have, which is nothing, I don't feel so sorry for myself anymore. I'm a little more thankful what God has given me. And I'll tell you what, being able to serve these folks, they're in no position of power to do anything to improve your life. This is totally pure selfless service. And I leave there feeling like I have, this is what Christianity is all about. It's being what Jesus was, a servant to others. Ask the Lord to give you an opportunity this Christmas season to serve somebody. It doesn't be a big thing. Maybe it's, you know, taking somebody who is elderly out to get medicine or uh, watching uh, a couple of kids at your, of your neighbors so they can go out and do Christmas shopping for the afternoon, whatever. But ask God to give you the grace to make time because he'll lead somebody to you. And when he does, the tendency or the temptation will be, oh, I don't have time for this, Lord. But didn't you pray about this? Didn't you ask me to lead somebody to you? Yeah, I guess I did. All right. I believe this is a divine appointment. And I'm telling you, I'm hoping that if you do that, it won't just be then once a year. You'll begin to get into the whole idea of how incredible it is to serve others. And what a joy that is. And how you represent Jesus to these folks. So let's put feet to our Christianity, feet to our faith. It's great to come here and sing God's praises and so on and so learn his word. But let's go out and live it out in our lives and ask God for the grace to be a servant this season to somebody for Jesus' sake. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for our Savior who freely gave his life for us. Of course, he literally died that we might live. But Lord, we ask you to give us grace to die to our flesh, to die to our own
desires to be a servant to those around us. And Lord, forgive us if we become selfish in our Christianity. I think it's a pitfall we all fall into at times. But give us grace, Lord, to wash feet, to be a servant to others. That, Lord, we might understand the joy that comes from fulfilling our purpose for existing as Christians. And it isn't to be served, it's to serve and to give our lives to others. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being a servant to others. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.